Hey everyone, after 150 episodes of Beyond the Plate, this is a first. John Gargano, general manager of Tom Colicchio's Craft New York and Volata, tells his incredible story and takes us on his life's journey, which contains some explicit language. With that said, a big thanks to John for being open, honest, and sharing his real life experiences. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. All right, let's do it. We're going to test your audio. For you, you're a front of house general manager, dining room guy. So can you name three ways you make sure a customer leaves happy from the restaurant? Well, they're not customers, first of all. They're all guests. We don't let our staff call them customers and I don't call them customers. But three ways is you make sure you let them know they're appreciated. They passed 200 other places from the time they got off the subway to when they got here, you make sure they get their food in a timely manner and they don't want for nothing the whole time they're here. Love it. All right, you sound good. Let's do it. Hey everyone, I'm Cappy and you're listening to Beyond the Plate. I'm a chef by trade and hospitality professional. By day, I head up Rachel Ray's culinary operations and co-founded her cooking and kids charity called Yummo. Five years ago, I had the idea to put together a podcast where we sit down with the world's culinary elite to explore their journey into the food industry and the social impact they have made in their community. Hence, the name Beyond the Plate. If you're new to the pod, welcome. If you listened before, we're so glad you're back. We hope this episode inspires you to cook or, like the chefs we feature, make a difference in your community. And we're grateful to our partners who make this podcast a reality. With that... This episode is brought to you by our friends at One Hope Wine. One Hope is a Napa Valley winery built on hope and rooted in purpose. Every bottle of their award-winning wine supports a meaningful cause. One Hope's commitment to high-quality wine is as important as their commitment to the causes they support. Through the sale of every bottle, One Hope has donated over $8 million to causes around the world. I'm a big fan of One Hope Cappy and love now at the front and center of their homepage, it says every purchase now gives 10% back to the cause of your choice. It's a new thing they're doing. It's awesome. You could type in the charity that you want to support and the 10% will go straight to that charity. By the way, let me correct myself. Update here. I actually went on their site and check this out. They've given over $9 million now. And right on the site, it says, join us on our mission to give back to local and global organizations with 10% of every purchase donating directly to a cause of your choice. With over $9 million donated to date, we continue to change the world one glass at a time. This number just keeps going up, dude. I love it. It really does. To learn more about One Hope Wine, the winery, and to apply to become a winery member, go to onehopewine.com. Follow them on Instagram at One Hope and on Facebook at One Hope Wine. One Hope, we thank you. One more thing. We have some awesome Beyond the Plate merch. You can find a link in your podcast player or go to our website, beyondtheplatepodcast.com. Head on over and check out our hats, tees, hoodies, and more. Again, that's beyondtheplatepodcast.com. Enjoy this week's episode. All right. I can confidently say this is a first. We're going to borrow a portion of President Obama's Facebook post to do your intro, and we'll link to the full post in the episode notes of the podcast player. So today's guest, and I quote, grew up on a small vegetable farm in New Jersey. He later moved to Philadelphia after high school and began working various jobs to make ends meet. While there, he started using and selling drugs and was ultimately arrested and sentenced to 30 years in prison despite being a nonviolent first-time offender. For the first three years he was incarcerated, he didn't want to talk to anyone, but he eventually vowed that he would refuse to allow his sentence to break him and turn to education to inspire and restore his hope for the future, end quote. Today, he tells his incredible story. He currently works as a general manager at Chef Tom Colicchio's Craft New York and Volata and is an advocate for prison reform. As President Obama says, John's life is a testament to the power of a second chance. Furthermore, he's a graduate of NYU School of Professional Studies with a degree in leadership and management studies. You may be familiar with his story from the Humans of New York Instagram handle, which has racked up over 2 million likes and over 13,000 comments. Please enjoy this episode as we go beyond the plate with John Gargano. John, it's good to have you here, ma'am. Likewise. Glad to be here. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time, and it's not every day I get to do someone's intro straight from the words of President Barack Obama. How does that feel? (laughs) (laughs) If that doesn't strike your emotions, I don't know what the hell would. John, we actually reached out to President Obama and his team. They wrote back and they said, I quote, always great to hear good news about John. 
pass along our well wishes. He knows President Obama is proud of him. You were granted a presidential pardon by President Obama. I want to hear about that moment. And I guess it's safe to say that it changed you. I talk about this often. When you're in prison, you kind of, it's like when you have an injury and you put ice on, let's say you're playing baseball and you throw your arm out and you're icing it down, right? You become numb, right? Being in prison is almost like the same thing. You ice yourself down, you make yourself free of any kind of emotional reaction or you don't let anyone close to you or kind of know what it is you're thinking or what your sensitivities are. You watch George Bush get reelected, you're mad. President Obama comes swarming in, he gets elected and everybody thinks finally we have somebody who's gonna understand the injustices that are in the criminal justice system. His first term goes by, many of us start to give up on him and then Eric Holder and him announced the clemency initiative and it was a big deal. Obama's entire presidency was a big deal for inmates in prison. I remember the night that he was sworn in when he came out on stage in that park in Chicago. It was him, Michelle, the kids, everybody in the prison was up. It was like 11 o'clock at night and everybody in prison was up watching them guys come out on that stage. And his whole campaign was hope, right? Yes, you can. And when you looked around the room in the prisons that night, that's what you saw. You saw people, you saw young kids, you saw older men, you saw blacks, browns, every nationality in the world saying, you know what, maybe we have a chance. Maybe we have a chance that someday, not that the doors are going to open and floodgates, everyone's going to come out, but maybe we have a chance that there's going to be some reform. Um, And like I said, his first term went by and nothing really happened. Some wiser individuals realized that he wasn't going to make too many waves during his first term, especially if the, the Affordable Care Act. But when Eric Holder and him announced the clemency initiative, it was like, the gossip mill in the prison just spread. Everybody was excited and everybody was on the yard. Everybody was talking about it. And they said, if you're a nonviolent offender, you received more time than you would have had you been sentenced at that time. You've never been in trouble in prison and your current charge is nonviolent and you served more than 50% of your sentence. There was the clemency project was going to assign you an attorney. They were going to do your petition and you would be considered as a candidate for clemency. Well, considering I argued my case all the way to the Supreme Court pro se and was denied, I was pretty much educated on preparing petitions and getting stuff together. So I did my own. I didn't wait. I wasn't waiting for no lawyer to come and do my petition. I did my own. I sent it in, went to law library every day for three months and forgot about it. Two years passed, batch after batch after batch kept coming out. Oh, Obama announces 67 clemencies this today. Obama announced 99 this date. And I started to give up hope. And then I'll never forget it. August 3rd, 2016. I was working as a landscape clerk and I was back in that landscape yard. And I heard my name come over to intercom. They called me to my counselor's office and they said, SIS wants to see you at one o'clock in the warden's office. So SIS is like the internal police agency inside the prison. It's like your local police department. Anything that happens inside the prison, they investigate it. They're powerful people. They could arrest a prison guard. What did you think they were calling you in for? Who knows? You know, when you're in prison, they play all kinds of games. They call you in to try to ask you information about the next guy. Or you were on the yard this day and this guy got hurt. And what did you see? Nine out of 10 times, you tell them to go screw themselves. You ain't telling them shit. But so my smart ass, I said, they want to see me at one o'clock. Screw that. I'm going there right now. So I go there. It's like 11 o'clock. I go there and the warden's like, I was his clerk. I used to cut his grass. I used to drive his wife to the grocery store. And he's like, just come back at one o'clock. So I go back at one o'clock. There's like six guys sitting on a bench. I'm looking around. I'm like, there's no relationship. Like there's six of us from all over the country. We're all different ages. We're all different races. We're all in for all different crimes. None of us hang out together. None of us work in the same places. So I'm like, this is weird. So then I said to everybody, I said, hey, did everybody here apply for clemency? And one by one, everybody said, yeah, they did. I said, well, that's what this is. I said, we're going to find out today, yes or no. So I was convinced at that point that it was either going to be a yes or a no. I didn't know what the procedure was for denying you. But in my mind, that's the only rational reason why we would all be there. So one by one, they all went in and they came out slamming the door, cursing SIS, saying these people are crazy, always trying to drum up some shit. So I'm like, oh, maybe this is inclemency. So I got in there, the phone rang and the warden said, answer the phone. 
Well, I'm sure most of your listeners and yourself have never been in prison, but you don't answer the phone in prison. You answer the phone in prison and you're never going to see the yard again for years. So I answer it and on the other end of the phone, it was a lady. She said, John, this is Temi Toby Youssef. I'm the attorney who was assigned to you for the clemency project. And just want to let you know that Barack Obama signed your petition this morning. You've gone home four days. Damn. The emotions are still raw. Yeah. You know, you're sitting in there, you have... 15, 10, 12 years left. You're trying to fool yourself into believing that you're going to have some kind of life when you get out. And they just pull that whole rug from out from under you. And they say, you're going home in four days. So I got on the golf cart. I drove to the middle of the prison yard to this little area that the landscape department used to take care of. And growing up on a farm and growing vegetables and flowers and all, I translated that while I was in prison. And we had this really nice courtyard. And I just sat there. I sat there for like two hours. Thought about my father. He passed like seven years earlier. I finally got up and I went and called my mom. I was like, I'll never forget. I said, Mom, you sitting down? She's about 80, 80, 78 at the time. I said, you sitting down? She goes, what are, you, what are you talking about? Am I sitting down? What the hell's the difference? I'm sitting down. You're always calling on some bullshit. I was like, Mom, are you sitting down? And I'll never forget. She said, Johnny, ever since the day your father died, I only prayed for one thing. I was like, what's that, Mom? She said, all I wanted to do was see you come home one day. She said, that's all I wanted to do. She said, I knew you wouldn't let me down. So for many, it's just you're coming home from prison. But for me, it, it was like the start of a new era, a new life. And so much hatred and so much like anxiety and disgust of the whole criminal justice system for so many years. I saw so many young kids getting 10 and 20 and 30 years. Kids three time, a life sentence in the Fed for a total of 10 pounds of marijuana. Like, And I remember walking out the door the day I went home and looking over my shoulder and seeing plenty of people. Keith, this guy from Florida who got 35 years with young kids at home or Coop from Atlanta. And that's, that's what's driven me all the way to today is like, yeah, I got a break. I got to come home, but there's millions of people that come home every day in this country and everybody slams the door in their face every day and don't give them a chance. And that's what we have to change as a society if we're ever going to, if we're ever going to solve the criminal justice problem, we have to beat them at their own game. They want inmates to go back. They want you to reoffend. They don't give you the help inside. They don't give you the help outside. Only way to beat them is make sure people don't go back. The day I left prison, the prison guard said, we'll see you when you get back. I said, fuck you. You won't see me when I get back. You'll never see me again. I said, matter of fact, I'm going to work every day of my life to make sure every last one of you motherfuckers is unemployed. And I told him just like that. And I wish I ran across them right now. Love it, man. Thank you for sharing that. Wow. For the listeners, before we keep going, I, along with the millions of people who read John's story on the Humans of New York Post were clearly inspired. So it's not often one person gets 13 posts to tell their story on that page. I haven't stopped talking about John's story. I've been sharing it with friends. And so I highly encourage you all to take a look as well. How about the reaction you were met with after that post? Was that overwhelming for you? Yeah, Brandon warned me. I remember we were all set. It was July 31st we were going to post. All set. That whole story evolved. It took, it was a lot to get to that point. When I was working at River Park for Tom before the pandemic, there was a young guy there by the name of Runan Wang, who was an exchange student from China, went to the Culinary Institute. He came there. He, he was a server, a captain. I taught him a lot. We became friends. So during the pandemic, Brandon made a post and said, hey, listen, now there's a pandemic. I'm not out taking pictures of people. If you know anybody from New York who's done something extraordinary, tell me about it. Maybe I'll write about it. So he submitted my name. Runa called me up and said, hey, Brandon called me. He wants me to connect you to. I said, who the, who the hell is Brandon? I never heard of this, humans in New York. You know, what is this? I didn't realize, I mean, it's almost like a cult. I remember when my story came out, like all these people are posting, I'm taking the rest of the day off. No more. I'm calling out sick. I, I put the phone on do not disturb. Like it's crazy. It was insane. Right. So I didn't realize it, but he came and he wanted to write everything. I said, no, you're not writing everything. He's like, well, I think your story's powerful if you leave some parts out, but I still think you should write everything. So we went back and forth. And then finally, I threw him out. Now, get out of here. You just want to write juicy shit. I don't want to deal with it. Then I thought about it. I talked to some people at work. My HR director here, Kelly, she's a great person, a better human being than she is an HR director. But she's like, I think you should let him write everything. So she finally convinced me to let him write everything. And when I called him to tell him that, he's like, well, now I'm busy. So now you got to wait. So then he made me wait like four months. Then we started meeting every day for like four months. Wow. And he would come with his laptop. 
and he would think he's being slick and he would want to try to funnel the questions so he could get the information that he wanted. But at the end, he finally came up with a piece that was crazy good. It was supposed to post on like the 31st. And then he's like, you better be ready for this. I'm like, ready for what? He's like, I've just been through 15 years in federal prison. I've been on the roller coaster ride from hell. Like, what the hell is your little story going to change in my life, right? <laughs> so we were all ready to post. He said, nope, I need one more day. I'm like, are you kidding me? You build me up to this whole thing. And now it's the, ne the next day. And he didn't tell me at the time why, but he had realized that Barack Obama's birthday was the following day and he wanted to post it on his birthday. So... That, that's what we did. And it was insane. From the very first post to the last post, there were literally people inside the restaurant at Kraft waiting for the last post, like guests at the table reading the last post. And Brandon and I were sitting across the room watching them. It was a crazy roller coaster. People from all over the world were tagging me, posting me. And for the restaurant, I mean, even now, every single night, every night, there's 10, 20, 30 people that come here because they read that post. They were coming to New York, they read the post, they had to come and support Tom. How did that make you feel? I mean, usually you hear like these rock star chefs, people are coming maybe to see Tom, they see him on Top Chef, even though he's a talented ass chef, but you know? Yeah, 100%. Matter of fact, Tom was supposed to leave for London to film next season of Top Chef, and he was actually here like six hours before he was getting on a flight because he wanted to be here when the story posts. I've worked for a lot of, I worked for Chef Perret in Philadelphia, Lebec Finn, one of the best French restaurants ever. It was a different era. I've worked for some of the best French chefs ever. George was top five in the country at that time. It was a different era. You learn differently, but it was there. I learned that if you're going to be successful in the restaurant industry, it's just a simple algorithm. It's all about how you make people feel. And I talk about this all the time and I'll get back to Tom in a second, but when you had so much hurt in your life and there's so many things in your life that you wanted for yourself and you never got them because you were unable to accept one thing or you had pain or trauma from something else, like making other people feel good, it's easy. It's you know how to make them feel the way that you never could for yourself. My therapist, I talk to him all the time and he's like, if you ever treat yourself the way that you treat your guests, it would be a whole different world. So hospitality is easy for me. I used to be a funeral director. It's actually where I found out about my diagnosis, but selling a grieving wife a $15,000 casket and making her feel like she's not burying her husband. If you can do that, you can make guests feel like they're on the moon while they're sitting in your dining room eating food. But Working for a company whose motto is make people happy, you know, that's who we are here at Craft. That's who Tom is as a human being. We provide opportunities for people from all different spectrums. We just recently launched a program with Smile Farms. Smile Farms is an organization that's founded by Jim McCann at 1-800-Flowers. Takes developmentally disabled adults and places them in farm settings. They work there. It gives them an opportunity to participate in a job, in an occupation, in a community, something that, that a lot of these individuals never had a possibility to do. When I was at River Park, we had a farm there and we had a couple of them work for us. I remember this one guy, Kevin. Watching him from the day he got there until the day I left there just turned into a whole complete different human being because for once in his life, he felt like he was part of something that was in their mind, normal. So when I got here to craft, my crazy idea is I wanted to put a farm on the roof. We're in the middle of Union Square. There's no room for a farm. So the roof was the only option. That didn't work out. So I called Jim from Smile Farms. I said, Jim, why does it have to be a farm? Why, why do these workers have to work on a farm? These workers can work in the restaurant industry. These workers can polish silverware. These workers can polish glassware. So currently, we have nine Smile Farms workers that work in Crafted Hospitality. Smile Farms just honored Tom and Crafted at their recent gala where we auctioned off a dinner for 12 with Tom in the dining room where he cooks for them and comes out. They bid it up to like $25,000. And then after the bidder bought it, the guy he was bidding up against stood up and said, if you do it twice, I'll give him another 25000 So, you know, we raised a lot of money, a lot of money for that organization. And it's money for, it's just good. It's just, it's just what's good in the world, right? We have these couple guys here, Tyrell, Manny, Estevan, Kimberly. They all work here. They come to work every day. They're the first one here. They're the first one, the last one to leave. They're respectful. They've worked here nine months. Not one of them has missed one shift or been late. That's who Crafted is. That's who Tom is. Listen, I got out of prison. I had a handwritten recommendation from George Perrier 
I would, I'll put them up against top 10 chefs in the history of this country. And nobody in this city would give me an interview. All these coward chefs in this city, and I'll call them cowards, and I'll call it to them to their face because it's facts. They saw my criminal record, and they wouldn't give me a chance. Tom's people said, I'll give you a job. $10 an hour beer garden cashier. Show me what you got. I don't care what you did. If you're good enough for President Obama, you're good enough for me. Let's see what you got. Fast forward five years later, here I am, a GM of Kraft and Velada. We're busier than we've ever been. And you know what? To do it for a guy like Tom and for a company like this who just does good all the time, it's not even like work. It's fun. Were you confident sitting in that interview with Tom's Restaurant Group or did you no, think you were coming no. across another? Were you like, I'm never going to fucking get this job? Listen, when I was at the halfway house, you schedule appointments after appointments, right? You get there. A couple of them, I didn't even go in because I didn't know what to say. Finally, I get to River Park. I say, you know what? Screw this. Like, I'm no chump. You know what I'm saying? Like, I know what I'm about. I know what I can do. So I walked in there. They said, sit there in the lobby. Uh, Raven will be right with you. So I'm sitting in the lobby and I'm watching Raven come from the back. And I get up and I, I, I probably met him halfway in the dining room instead of waiting for him. And I'm like, here's my resume before you say anything. There's a 15 year gap, blah, 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 blah. And he said, okay, let's have a seat. Let's talk about this. He's like, I don't care. He's like, I care about how you're going to treat my guests and how you're going to treat your fellow staff members. So they gave me a chance. Fast forward. Raven told me later, he's like, the only reason I gave you a job was because you said you went to University of Ohio in Athens while you were in prison. And I graduated from there. So I figured, hey, if he went to the same college as me, some, something's telling me I should give this guy a job. It's funny how that works. You started to talk about that the story about Obama announcing the clemency program and how you did your own petition and all that. But I remember reading at Humans in New York towards the end of one of those posts, you said you knew it was going to be the biggest fucking stack of applications in the world and yours was going to be sitting on the very top. So I bring that up because I'm curious, where does this mindset come from? Like, would you call that hope or confidence? You know, it's reality. You have 220,000 federal inmates, right? They laid a criteria out. But nobody that's in prison is going to care about that criteria. Everybody's going to apply, right? So if you want to be considered, if you want your application to stand out, you got to make it good. You got to make it look good, right? I was preparing for this from the first day I went to prison. I argued my case pro se all the way to the Supreme Court, hoping that at some point there would be an opportunity for my case to be reopened and my sentence to be reexamined. And if and when that happened, I was going to look good. So I had stacks and stacks and stacks of certificates from all of these educational programs that I took while I was in prison so that if that second chance or if that reevaluation ever took place, they were going to give me the best possible benefit they could. In federal court, you once 365 days goes by, your sentence is final, right? The only way you get back into court is if you're in the appeal process, direct appeal or second circuit or Supreme Court, if they vacate for some reason and then they go back in and look. My case was tied to a mandatory minimum. They used a prior offense to double my mandatory minimum, which gave me a 20-year sentence and 10 years supervised release for a total of 30 years. I argued from the beginning that the predicate offense that they used to enhance my sentencing was not valid, that it was actually a lesser but included offense in the current conspiracy. And then secondhand, it was not a crime serious enough to trigger that enhancement. And the, re the ironic thing of it all, as we talk politics and red, blue, et cetera, Donald Trump in the First Step Act validated my argument in it and they corrected it that I was right all along. I only should have got 10 years and five years supervised release. My argument was actually valid and correct that the interpretation that the Southern District of New York court took was incorrect, which puts a little ironic twist on it all because I would never vote for Donald Trump in a million years. But anyway. <laughs> Thank you for sharing all that. But I bring it up, like explain how an inmate becomes a model inmate. It's not so much being a model inmate, but you know the system, right? Your social intelligence gives you the framework of what you need to do to make it through, right? If you keep getting in fights and you keep breaking the rules and your room's not clean and you're telling the guards to go fuck themselves, what you going to get out of it? Nothing but headaches, aggravation, locked up in the shoe, commissary restrictions, visitation restrictions. Listen, you can only play the hand you're dealt. Make the best of it, right? Did I want to tell them prison guards every day they were scumbag pieces of shit? You're damn right I did. But what does that get you? It doesn't get you nowhere. Keep your eyes set on the goal. Would you consider yourself a confident person? 100%. 100%. It doesn't take much. All you got to be is prepared. All you got to be is planned. Right now, every restaurant in the city, they're worrying about getting through December. They're worrying about Christmas Eve. They're worrying about New Year's Eve. What am I worried about? I'm worried about booking every last inquiry for the month of January and February that I can while everybody else is forgetting about it. 
so that when January 1st comes and all these other restaurant managers are looking and say, oh my God, how are we going to get through this month? I already know we're already through the month because we already have enough contracted sales to pay all our bills. When you're dealing with people, you just have to be in the upper, in the top 10 percentile, and then you can outperform everybody else. It's all about being prepared, about planning. You're a smart guy. Did you know you were ready for this GM role or did like someone else at Kraft know you were ready? So when the pandemic hit, we're all home. I had just gotten a scholarship to go to NYU. I had a year and a half left. So I took summer classes. I took five classes a semester for three semesters and I graduated in May of 2021. Just when NYU announced me as commencement speaker, my old boss from River Park, Greg, called me and said, hey, we're coming out of the pandemic now. Craft's about to reopen, but we're looking for a GM over there. Are you interested? I was like, hell yeah, I'm interested. So I met with Greg and Justin and Tom, and I wasn't sure if I was ready, but I knew, I knew at my core that I can figure anything out. Restaurant management is about taking care of your staff and taking care of your guests. And it goes back to that same old feeling, making people understand the first three lines of Brandon's story at five o'clock. I don't care what's going on. I don't care if your significant other is homeschooling the neighbor. Make sure that that guest walking through the door understands that they're the most important thing in the world. And if you can't do that, get my uniform off and go collect 504 a week, New York State Department of Labor Unemployment. Because you can't work here if you can't let a guest know that we appreciate them coming here. You just can't work here. Yeah, I love that. I know you said you have to be the best at whatever you do. Would you say you're hard on yourself? 100%. You have to be. If you hold yourself to a higher level of accountability, listen, the success of this restaurant is on my shoulders, period. If we lose money this month, they're not going to say, oh, those captains could have sold a little bit more money than they did. No. If we let 20 covers a night slip from our fingertips and 600 less covers for the month, and it's $100,000 less money, they're not going to talk about the dishwasher. I'm at the helmet. I'm driving this train. This is on me, right? Don't take the job if you can't do it. If you're not willing to commit the time to do it, then don't take it. Go be a captain somewhere. Tom didn't hire me to do 75%. Tom hired me. This restaurant's back on the map. Pre-pandemic, people weren't talking about craft. You know, 22 years. What restaurant is open 22 years in New York City? And busier than it's ever been. No, Nowhere. Nowhere. I told Tom when I took this job and I've told all these people in there in this restaurant, we're going to stake that flag, that crafted hospitality flag right in the corner of 19th and Park. And this neighborhood belongs back to Tom again. There was a time that craft wasn't relevant for a short period of time. But like I said, you, you can't get a reservation from now to Christmas. We're sold out. Good for you, man. Christmas Eve sold out. We're almost sold out for New Year's Eve. I say all the time when craft opened on any given night, you would see stars like Madonna in the dining room, the Clintons. Right. This team right now, they're giving Madonna Lake performances every single night. Guests are leaving here remembering what it's like to come to New York City and be treated the way that you're supposed to be. I dine out in the city. Half of the service staff across the city, they couldn't work in my restaurant as a dishwasher. You're not lying. Speaking to your guests, and you've mentioned this as we've been talking, you said it's all about how you make them feel, all about how you make people feel. Where did you learn your essence of hospitality? It's pretty extraordinary. Maybe my mother and father. My father was a politician, so there's a lot of similar characteristics to, be, to being a politician, to being in hospitality. I learned the most about how to make people feel, I think, from Diane Hennessy and Bob Hennessy, who they own the local funeral home in our town. The whole family, everybody uses them. A small town in South Jersey, Williamstown. It's like my second family. Diane's like my second mother. Bob was like my second father. There are two sons, Bobby and Patrick. They're like my brothers. How old were you when you worked there? So, so I knew Diane since I was like 15, 18. But I worked there right before I moved to Philadelphia to work for Chef Perrier. But you watch a family come in grieving the loss of, of a loved one. And to watch Diane just swoop them off their feet and a heart bigger than life just knew what to do and what to say all the time. I've seen her open up her home for families to have like luncheons after funerals because they didn't have some place to have it or they couldn't afford to have it. I've seen her taking kids who had nowhere to live, friends of Bobby and Patrick's that had nowhere to live, take them in their home. I think I learned the most about hospitality from Diane, just how to make yourself not always first. Put others in front of yourself. Think bigger than self. When you can make the world bigger than yourself, and do for others, the rewards, like she writes to me all the time right now and she says how proud of me she is and for the man I've become. That pays her back every day. When you can do that, 
tenfold, when you can impact 10, 15, 20 people's lives and you watch them evolve and grow, there's a snowball effect and it, it becomes an obsession. If we all did that, the world would be a much greater place. Heck yeah, man. But that's where I learned most of my most of my hospitality from. Love that. I want to hear about more like little John Gargano. Can you take us back to South Jersey, like in the 70s, like as a little kid? How would you describe your childhood? I was always obsessed with business, right? Always obsessed with numbers. My dad was a green, a vegetable farmer, green onion farmer. And I used to remember at the end of the night, we'd be loading the truck and he'd be like, how many boxes we got? And I'd be like, eight times seven is 56 times six is 336 times six is 2112 or whatever. And people would be like, how the hell did you do that? And it was just, I was always obsessed with numbers. And my whole life, I could calculate a check with tax and gratuity in my mind. And even some of my coworkers. I never did homework. I got straight A's without doing homework. I used to do my older sister's homework. So I was always smart, I was always good with numbers, and I was always obsessed with business. I remember I was 15 years old and wanted to sell Easter flowers. My cousins owned greenhouses and grew Easter flowers, so I wanted to sell Easter flowers. So I wasn't even old enough to drive. I would pay my grandfather to drive me around and buy them all and then sell them. There was always a fascination with business. There was always a fascination with problem solving. There was always a fascination with trying to increase things to be more productive. So that was really much my childhood. I started working. I was five years old on the farm making wooden crates for the onions to be shipped in. And we come from a small town in South Jersey, all Italian heritage, everybody for three miles each way was related. I would come home and my mom would be like, you son of a bitch, your Aunt Katie called and said you were at that back there jumping cars on a motorcycle again. So you never got away with anything because all your nosy old lady aunts were calling and snitching you out. But growing up in an Italian family, it was it's weird, you know. Italian men are not very, don't express their emotions much, don't talk about much. They always swept problems under the rug. Nobody, There was never no real conversation about how you felt or what was bothering you. And I think those things carried into a younger adult life of mine. And when I found out about the HIV diagnosis, I just couldn't deal with it. So I was just going to run away. I ran away to Philadelphia and did what made me feel good, serving tables and having guests have great experiences, that made me feel good. That was my cocaine, for lack of a better word, at the time. But then when that didn't become enough, then I moved to New York. And I got to New York and I started drinking and using drugs. And before you knew it, I was selling them so that I could afford to use them. And then the feds knock on the door. I had a couple brushes with the law in between. Dad was a politician, knew a lot of good attorneys, hire a couple hotshot attorneys, get a slap on the wrist. And then you think you can do that all the time. But once the feds get you, it's a whole different story. I remember asking the feds, when's my bail hearing? Bail? You ain't getting no fucking bail. I'm like, what are you talking about? It's a constitutional right. Yeah, okay. Not in the federal system. You don't have no rights here. But I think from a young age, the business was always a fascination and still is. How about family dinners? Did you guys eat as a family growing up? Christmas Eve, 25 to 50 people in my aunt's basement, seven fishes. My aunts would be cooking for 25 days in advance. Who had the best meatballs? I hate to break it to them. If I brought Chef Tom's meatballs to them now, they would throw all their meatballs in the trash. <laughs> <laughs> I got a double batch of meatballs I actually have to make tonight for a potluck dinner at my kid's school. So I got to find Tom's recipe. I usually make Rocco de Spiritos. I like those ones. but yeah, Tom's the best. 70% ground veal, grind, grind it three times. 30, what's the cheese? I can't, I can't give his recipe out on this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Parmesan. Parmesan, it is. It's 70% veal, 30% Parmesan. All right. I believe. He'll be in in a minute. I'll ask him. But they're so light. It's like you eat the meatballs. I remember eating my aunt's meatballs. You eat a meatball sandwich, you want to lay on the couch and go to sleep right. for a day. Right. right. His meatballs, you could run a marathon after. That's so funny. So were you into food growing up? Yeah, I always cooked. I always cooked. I remember my sister got this little play school oven when she, I don't know how old she was. I cracked eggs on top of it and tried to cook it. <laughs> <laughs> my mom's got pictures of these raw eggs on top of the oven That's dripping funny. down. Wait, so what's this thing where you would bring baskets of vegetables to your friend's mother's? Did your parents tell you to do that or is that something you wanted to do? No. So working on the farm, corn, Jersey corn and tomatoes, the best in the world. I don't care. I'll put them up against anybody's. So you're on the farm, you're over there picking a basket of corn. You're not just, you're not just going to bring it to your house. You're going to drop it off at your friend's mom's house. You go to the produce market. Two of my cousins own stores in the Philadelphia Fresh Fruit Terminal. So I used to pick up produce. I used to bring the onions from the farm to the market and then pick up produce and go back to local delis and restaurants and schools and sell it to them as a little side job when I was young. Always obsessed with money. I don't know. 
That's so funny. What do you want to be when you grew up? Listen, it went from, it went from, ironically, at first I thought I wanted to be a cop, but didn't go that route. I actually was except, my dad was a deputy mayor in Winslow Township and I got hired as a Winslow Township police officer, but then I backed out before I went to the academy. I worked on Atlantic City Expressway as a police dispatcher for the New Jersey State Police for like three years. I did everything. Funeral director, toll collector, dispatcher for the state police. Wild. When did you start waiting tables? When did you start getting into the industry? When I moved away from home. That was after high school? Diane Hennessy from the funeral home got me my first job at Hardshell Cafe. It was a Hardshell Cafe. They had one in Summers Point, New Jersey, one on 9th and Market in Philadelphia. That was my first job. And then this guy, Drew, who was the casket salesman for Batesville Casket, was friends with Chef Perrier's general manager at Brasserie Perrier. And that's when I got my job at Lebec Finn. And then I moved to Brasserie Perrier before I came to New York. So I worked at Union Square. The old one. If you're going to do something, be the best, right? Be the best. I remember being in Philadelphia. I worked at the best restaurant in Philadelphia. That wasn't enough. So I came to New York. Everybody talked about Danny Meyer and Union Square Cafe, right? This is the elite hospitality, right? So I said, I'm going to get a job there. Everybody said, no, you're not. I said, watch me. Yes, I am. So I went there, got a job, worked there three days a week, and worked at Lebec three days a week. Went back and forth. No shit. Then I moved to New York with a cousin of mine in Brooklyn, stayed here for a while before I got arrested. Wow. What three words would you use to describe inmate number 56134066? Obsessed, determined, and unfinished. Love that. How about what three words would you use to describe John Gargano today? On a mission focused and relentless. All right, John, I'm super excited for this next part on social impact and giving back. As I believe you know, our podcast, we celebrate social impact with every guest on the podcast, learning how they do it, causes they work with. You've already touched on some incredible work you all do with organizations through Crafted Hospitality at the restaurant there. But I'm really curious for you to tell me about even more of the work you're doing. I know there's quite a bit. You're an avid supporter of criminal justice reform and advocating for providing opportunities for people who may not otherwise have them. So I may just shut up and let you jump in. Well, cold hard facts are that 77% of the people that come home from prison go back within three years, right? We're all foolish if we think that all 77% of them people want to go back to prison, right? So how do we address it? How do we dissect it? How do you look at a problem and say, why is this happening and what can we do about it, right? 50% of society says, I don't give a fuck. It's not my kid. It's nobody I know. They made their choices. They know the consequences. That's not always the case. Blacks and browns have it 10 times worse than any other ethnic background, right? The internal systemic racism that many of our institutions have locked them in a lot of ways. In New York City, for citizens making $250,000 a year, housing is the most difficult thing in New York City for people to secure, right? When you come home from prison and you have no income, no work record, and a criminal history, you think you're getting housing? You're not getting housing. The federal government made me go to a halfway house in New York, even though my whole family was in New Jersey. When it was t- my halfway house time was open, it was done, they wouldn't let me go back to New Jersey then. They were going to send me to a shelter. If it wasn't for President Obama's people, I would have went to the shelter. But they called the probation department and made them extend my halfway house time so that I could find a job, et cetera, and get everything done so that I could get housing. Iris Bowen from the Coming Home Project in Mount Sinai St. Luke's Hospital. Ever since I met Iris, she's always wanted to open up a three-quarter house. She wants a facility that holds 100 people. People come home from prison. They have a place to go. If their mind's right, their goals are right, and their heart's in the right place, they come here. They... They get wraparound services, mental health, medical, everything they need to reintegrate back into society. They stay there for a year. You help them find housing. It's like a bridge between prison and a residence. That's where my goals are. That is my end goal. That's what me and Iris want to get off the ground. She's going to run it. We have some other people who are on the board of Housing Works, et cetera, here in the city who are going to help us get it started. But that's really my goal for 2023. Besides that, I speak, whoever asked me to go and speak, I try to fit it into my schedule. I spoke at Columbia University last month. I'm speaking at a basketball convention tournament in the Bronx in January. Tom and I both are going to appear on the 
Philadelphia Chef Conference Committee and talk about incarceration and, and restaurants. But what needs to happen is society needs to say, I'm not going to judge this person on their worst day, right? If all of us sat in a room, turn the lights out and say, you know what? What day in my life was I the worst human being that I possibly could be? Then the second question to say to themselves is, do I want everyone to think of me as that person? And I guarantee you 99% of the people who go through that process would say, hell no. But yet we do it to people that come home from prison every single day. Oh, he's an ex-con. Oh, he's an inmate. Oh, from the day you walk in prison and they start calling you an inmate, the word inmate has such negative connotation that's attached to it. It's basically you're just kicking somebody in the face every time you, you, you reference them, right? Society has to stop judging people on their worst day and start giving people opportunities, extending a hand. I said in my commencement speech at NYU, give each other the benefit of the doubt. Say to yourself, hey, that guy made a mistake. He paid, he did his time. He's home. Let's give him a chance. The more we do that, when that recidivism rate gets down to 50% or 40% or 30%, the tax windfall from that and start investing that in younger kids, we can do away with prisons. Yeah, you'll have a number of them because you'll always have the vagrants who just don't want to live up to societal norms. But if you took every five-year-old, every five-year-old that comes from a disadvantaged community and you make them go to a Ivy League graduation and watch people that are like them, when that five-year-old can look at somebody graduating from Harvard or Yale or NYU and see people from their, of their own kind becoming doctors and lawyers and think to themselves that they can do that, that should be a law. Every five-year-old should have to go to one of these graduations and see people like themselves graduating into these professions instead of just watching their older brothers, mothers, fathers, grandmothers go into prison. We have to come up with better policing activations where cops aren't seen as the bad guys. I don't blame the cops for me going to prison. I decided to sell drugs. I should have went to prison, but not for 30 years. And politicians need to have the courage to, to make changes. I remember speaking in front of 50 prosecutors at Yale University when I first got out. And they said, what advice can you give us to push the conversation of criminal justice reform? And I said, you need to have the courage. I said, you need to act like President Obama and have the courage to, do, to make a move bold, as bold as it might be, because you think it's the right thing to do and not worry about what the voters are going to say. Because at the end of the day, you're elected to, to do the job that you think is right for, for everybody, not just for one side or the other side. And as people, we need to vote. We vote these people into office. If you vote for people that don't have the same values or the same ideals as you, vote them out. We're the majority. There's more of us. There's more people who, if everybody that is sitting around complaining about the law, complaining about criminal justice, injustices, if all of those people voted, there would be nobody on the other side. But they don't go out and vote. So social impact takes on many faces and it's many levels. But for me, I want to provide opportunities for those who come home from prison because I don't want anyone to ever sit in that halfway house like I did and think about going to the New York City shelter program after just spending 13 years of their life in federal prison. The federal prison guards at Maxwell Air Force Base prison camp in 13 years couldn't figure out a way for me to come home from prison with my driver's license and social security card. And if that's not negligent, then I don't know what it is. I'd like to know what their prison budget was for all those years. I'd like to know how much of that money they spent on correction officer picnics. I'd like to know how much of that money they spent on unneeded correction officer overtime. They don't care about the inmates. Prisons have just become a way to, ha to house people like inhumane puppy mills. There's more laws to protect the puppies that are in these puppy mills than there are for uh, young kids that are being sent away to prison for all this time. Well, that's incredible. Two things here. One, your idea of bringing in kids to college graduations to see people of their kind graduating is fucking incredible. And I say that because before I started working with Rachel Ray over 15 years ago and we started a cooking and kids charity together, I had an idea when I was living in Miami, Florida to bring kids in lower income neighborhoods into high-end restaurants to experience a meal that they have never experienced. In my mind, that struck a chord with me because you have this idea to bring in these kids to, to see people of their kind. I think it's genius. Well, think about it. Think about it, right, Cap? I have a friend, right? His father died when he was two in a street gang or war in the Bronx. He was socialized from the time he was two, living in the projects with his mom. That's all he knew, right? It's so bad, he didn't even know how to put a license plate on his car. 
okay? If we don't expose younger children when they're impressionable to what they can be or what can happen to them or how they can achieve into these other professions, they'll never imagine it. They can't imagine something that they don't know or they didn't see. But if you make them go to these graduations, I would almost say make them go every year, kindergarten, first, second, third grade. Make them go. Mandatory. You can't advance to the next grade unless you go watch one of these graduations and see people that you can relate to be successful. Yeah. Love it. All right. Let's do a quick speed round. And then I have one or two questions to close it out and we'll go about our day. Number one, what did you have for dinner last night? What did I have for dinner last night? I walked out of my new apartment in Long Island City. The Jersey boy in me loves diners. There's a court square diner right across the street. I went in there and I had a chicken Parmesan sandwich without the bread and rice pudding. Yum. What about hospitality makes you smile? You never know what's going on in someone's life, right? I tell the staff all the time, you never know what's going on in a guest life. I remember, and this is what makes me smile. I remember working at River Park, 2 a.m., I get a phone call. My mom's coming tomorrow, and I ordered a gift certificate two months ago, and I don't have it yet. And I said, don't worry about it. Where's your mom live? She lives at 30th and 2nd. I'll drop it off to her doorman on my way home. I do that. Don't think about it. Three months later, the same guy calls me back. John, I can't, I want, I mean it to tell you a long time ago, a couple months ago, I didn't get a chance to get back to you. You made my mom's day that time. She came, she had lunch with her friends. She showed off because I went even further. I had Tom sign an autograph book for an all for her birthday. He's like, that you couldn't have came at a better time. Do you realize when I called you the first time I was in the Mayo Clinic with stage four cancer and that was my gift to my mother and you made my whole Christmas by being able to do that for my oh, mom. I have the chills. You never know what's going on in guest lives, right? Second example, lady comes in, five people at a table. They sit table 84 at River Park. The one lady at the table falls asleep at the table. Five days later, the guy calls me. John, I can't tell you how thankful I am for the hospitality that you gave my family last Sunday. You didn't know it at the time, but the lady who fell asleep at the table, that was her last meal. She was due to die any day. She wanted to eat dinner on the East River at your restaurant, and you guys just fucking killed it. It's not just serving food, bro. People come here, they're just like us. The couple that drove in from Long Island who saved six fucking months to come here and afford these prices, whose mother drove in from Pennsylvania to babysit so they could afford to go out. You don't know what's going on in people's lives. Every guest, every night, $1 check, $10,000 check, white, black, fat, skinny, it don't matter. Do your fucking job. Every guest, every night. That's what's good about hospitality. That's what I love about it is when you can take somebody's life and you can impact it and make them feel good. There's so much bad in the world and people are going through so much. If you can take them out of that for just for two hours and make them feel like Queen Elizabeth, that's hospitality. And everybody says it's because you you want them to feel the way you want. Everybody I know who's really, really good at hospitality, there's a guy in this restaurant, his name's Cesar. I will put him against any captain in this city. I'll put him against any captain in this country. He is the best captain that has ever done the job. And it's the same thing. And he says it all the time. I want them to feel the love and the happiness that I never did. Wild. What pisses you off about hospitality that people can't seem to get and they should? Give 100%. Give 100%, right? If a guest leaves here and writes me a review that they didn't like something, you failed, you should have realized it. I could look at you eat and tell you whether you like the food or not. I can watch you eat and tell you if you like the food or not. I can watch your face when I'm sitting you at a table and tell if you like that table or not. And if you can't pick those skill sets up, then you're not giving 100% and that's what pisses me off. I'll accept giving 100% through a whole meal and we just missed the mark or maybe the expectation from them was a little different than what we are and we can work on that as a team, but there's no excuse for not giving 100%, zero. Love it. Tell me the last great hospitality experience you received and it doesn't necessarily have to be restaurant related. I think the last hospitality experience that blew me away, I got to say, was when I got my job at River Park. That team, they took me in at a time in my life when I was hurt and I was wounded and I was injured and they let me heal. So it takes a lot to blow me away. I'm a hard critic. But that team, there was a team of people there, Lena, Sandra, Jessica, Sindra, Raven, the whole team here, they took me in and I was like a wounded bird and they put me back together and let me heal. And now I pay them back every day and it isn't going to stop until people know 
what this restaurant stands for and what this hospitality group stands for and what life can be if we just invest in each other. It's not just serving food. It's much bigger. Yeah. Last speed round question. What actor is playing John Gargano in a movie? I don't know. They're talking movies right now, but you know what? (laughs) (laughs) They are talking movies right now. I don't know. I'll leave that to the professionals, but it won't be a movie unless it's about the right things, right? And it to have the most impact, it needs to be about the givers. You read the Humans in New York story, and I talk about the givers all the time. There's a whole list of them. If it ain't about the givers, then it's not going to be about me because, yeah, I'm successful and I'm making impacts and I'm changing people's lives, but I'd probably be back in prison if it wasn't for the givers. So if you're not going to highlight the givers, then you can't highlight me. On that note, here's your last question. What do you want people to learn from your story? To never quit. Never fucking quit. At some point, life's going to knock you on your ass. Get up. Stay true to yourself. Rely on people that are around you. Know that there are people out there that, that will help and that will participate. And never fucking look back. Never look back. I could look back now and say, oh, I can't do this. I can't. Do- Fuck that. Never look back, stay focused, and you can do anything you want to do. John, appreciate your time. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I sure did, but thank you. Send me the edited version. I will. I will. Appreciate you, man. Keep doing what you do. Thanks again to John Gargano. Find him on Instagram at john.gargano.167. That's J-O-H-N dot G-A-R-G-A-N-O dot 167. To learn more about Smile Farms, go to smilefarms.org. We'll share a link to those websites in the episode notes and at beyondplaypodcast.com. Find me and keep up to date with this podcast across all social media at Uncappy's Plate or go to beyondtheplatepodcast.com. Beyond the Plate is on all the socials at BT Plate Podcast. This episode was produced by myself along with Ian Cohen, Joel Yetten, and Sean Petrosian. Our digital media producer is Sarah McClellan Me. Our music has been composed by Goldford. Find him at iGoldford. And as always, a special shout out to my wife, Katie. If you do have a moment, we'd love and appreciate it if you could rate or review and subscribe to this podcast on your listening site of choice. Don't forget to join us next Wednesday for an episode of Beyond the Drink, our companion podcast of Beyond the Plate, brought to you by our friends at Ford's Gin. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Plate. I'm Cappy. And remember, there are never too many cooks in the kitchen.